You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Turn with me in your Bibles if you've got one or on your phone, maybe if you can knock it on to John chapter 20. And we're going to think about Eddie's verse. 18 verses in that chapter today, just under two headings this morning um, as we prepare our hearts and our minds for sharing around the Lord's table today. Hope you've got your Bible there. It's so important to see what God says as opposed to what the preacher says. The first thing I simply want us to notice today in these verses is that's about seeing and believing. Seeing and believing. You see, the very last thing that John records for us at the end of chapter 19, do you see it there, is that Jesus' lifeless body is laid in a garden tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus of Nazareth is dead. You only bury dead people, don't you? And it was all a bit of a rush job because it was approaching the Jewish day of preparation and the ritual required meant there was to be no skulking around graveyards or doing heavy work on the Sabbath. So it had to be done very quickly, Jesus' body taken down from the cross, rushed to this borrowed tomb all very quickly before the Sabbath day began. And in piecing the evidence of all four Gospels together, of all the disciples, it was only John who was present at the cross and no doubt accompanied Jesus' body to his resting place. And within this funeral cortege, brief and all as it was, Luke 23, verse 55 tells us, the woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. They went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but rested on the Sabbath in obedience with the commandment. If ever you needed evidence that Jesus was dead and they knew where his body was and there was no confusion over where the tomb was and no one can ever say, oh, they went back to the wrong tomb and they got mixed up or Jesus wasn't really dead, he just had a swoon in the grave. That's nonsense because you don't bring spices in those days to people who are alive and you know exactly where you've been if you were there 36 hours before. There is no confusion that they know exactly where they're going and exactly what Jesus had gone through. He was dead in Joseph's tomb. But the first character we meet in the story today in verse 1 is Mary Magdalene. She's the first one at the the tomb. And look at verse 1. It's still dark. Very simple. It's still dark. Verse 1, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. And we also read here that the other women will will follow in afterwards, but Mary appears first. Mary's there, and she's there alone. Mary's alone in the dark. And the concern that all the women had in leaving their homes that morning in order to go and anoint Jesus with the spices was relieved because the huge great stone that would have kept them out from going in had been rolled back. They didn't have to worry about that anymore. The stone had been removed from the entrance. Dark, alone, a rolling stone. Now, I've had to be very gentle how I shared this with the folks in Le Comfort this morning. But I have had the misfortune on a number of occasions of having to lock up Le Comfort by myself very late at night and having to walk through that graveyard and all the way back to my car with the lights off. And every crack of a branch, every rustle of a tree, I've got to say, I am a car. And the number of times I sprinted from the back door to my car, I tell you, Usain Bolt wouldn't be in it. 
Honestly, it petrifies me at times. And here's Mary, the same. It's dark. She's in a graveyard and she's running. But she runs this time to tell Simon Peter and the other disciples. So she runs back to the disciples. Look at verse 2. She runs back and she says to the disciples, they've taken our Lord away and we don't know where they have put him. Mary's beginning to speculate, isn't she there? Look at the words. They, who are they? They have taken our Lord away. She doesn't know who. She's speculating. She's guessing. She doesn't know. It's all speculation. And so Mary hands the sprinting baton over to Peter and John. Now men, let's face it. Most of us are pretty competitive. As soon as Peter and John hear that the stone of the tomb has been rolled back, they engage in a foot race. And you know, well, John boy's old habits here don't die hard because we know that John and James were known as the sons of thunder. They always liked to be first at everything. In fact, John and James' mother even asked Jesus, could they sit in the prime seats in the kingdom of heaven? So John is this inbuilt that he should be first. And so John legs it and he beats Peter to the tomb. And he's quite happy to tell everybody that. Verse 3, they were running. Verse 4, the other disciple, well, he's modest enough to say it wasn't exactly me, but he says the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And verse 5, he arrived and he sees the strips of linen, but he doesn't go in. Now, as if to outdo John who'd beaten him, I've seen this happen in school playgrounds and in families over the years. You know, I'll race you to the car. And the race goes on, and one of them's reached the car first and touched it, but then the other one says, ah, but I'm first in the car. That's Peter here. John got there first, but Peter said, well, I'm away on in. Peter does the Peter thing. He fires on in. But what does he notice? Verse 7. Not only the linen cloth, but the napkin that had been around Jesus' head laid out separately. Finally, John joins Peter on the inside, and he sees what Peter saw. And look at verse 8 simple words. He believed. He saw and believed. The grave clothes were empty. It was like a cocoon. It was almost as if this body had emerged through the grave clothes because they lay there so perfectly for... I mean, they probably even had to give it a wee poke. Is any, he's, not, he's not there. There was something miraculous going on. Now, bear with me for a moment, but this is really important. It's not immediately obvious. When John wrote the account, he used three different words for seeing. Look at verse 5. As John peers in, it is the Greek word for to take a glance. It was just like we would say, a wee look. We just took a wee look. Verse 6, Peter bursts in, and the word that is used there is he looked carefully. And then verse 8, the word that's used for saw or seeing there was to perceive with comprehension. In other words, in layman's terms, the other disciple who had got there first went and said, and it dawned on him what was going on. We might say in Northern Ireland, the penny dropped. The penny finally dropped. John believed. Here before them, as daylight began to break, John saw the stone roll back. The grave closed as he had left them. The body of Jesus gone. The evidence for the resurrection was all there in front of them. It's incredible, really, isn't it? The number of times that Jesus told the disciples in advance of his death that he was going to die. He does it at least four times in each of the Gospels. That he would then be raised again. He says that at least four times in the Gospels that he was going to be raised again. 
but they refused to believe. His own disciples, who'd been with him for three whole years, refused to believe that Jesus was going to die and Jesus was going to be raised to life again. In fact, all four Gospels state it, and all four state that they didn't believe him. They refused to believe the word of Christ. Yet with evidence now before them, with things to see, with grave clothes and the like, they believed. Now, this is where there's a challenge for us today. Now, we've no tomb to run to. I mean, I can't all bundle you in a plane and fly you out as much as it'll be lovely to Jerusalem and go to that garden tomb and say, oh, look, he's not there. We're not going to be able to do that. But neither can I say, well, meet me in the car park afterwards and let's pass. Here's the grave clue. Let's pass. Everyone have a wee feel. Everyone just have a wee touch there and prove there's no one inside. I can't do that. That would be of no use and no help to us today. But that's the point. Do you realize that's the point? Seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. And how do I know? Because John says that in his own words just a few verses later in John 20, verses 30 to 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. Because like our friend Davos earlier, he saw, but he didn't believe. It's all about believing. And then you see what's going on. John is making it abundantly clear for us sitting here today, these 2,000 years later in Union Road, you don't need to see the risen Jesus. You don't need to see the empty tomb. But you do need to believe in Jesus who emerged from the empty tomb. If you're awaiting a dramatic lights in the sky earthquake of an event to prove the Lord Jesus is risen from the dead, you're looking, friends, in all the wrong places. It's only in this book, in the word of our Lord Jesus, will you find the risen Jesus. Like the disciples, the question for each of us sitting here today is, do we believe the word? Notice in verse 9, John doesn't fully understand, but he believes. And maybe today you fall into one of the categories like I listed at the start. Maybe you're someone who's still in the dark. You don't know what's happening around you. Maybe 2021 has left you feeling really vulnerable and uncertain and insecure. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're just completely in the dark about what is going on. For others I know, you feel as if you're standing alone. Maybe you felt locked away from what's going on, lonely, confused, isolated, cut off from others. Maybe you felt very alone. Or maybe you're sitting here today, you've heard of the stone and you know it's been removed, but you're asking the same question, what does all this mean? And so you end up speculating and guessing and reading all sorts of nonsense from all sorts of books and not really getting the grips what God's Word says. Or maybe you're a sprinter. And actually, I think probably this describes so many here in Union Road today. You know, you're the first to run to anything to do with Jesus. You love to be there and involved and busy. You almost love to be up to your ucksters in God's work. You love to be active. But when you stop, 
you actually haven't really got it. It's not that you don't see it, but you've never really believed it for yourself. And I know there are people in union, and that's you. You've heard it, and it's in there somewhere. It's not that you're saying, nah, but you haven't believed it for yourself. It has not changed your life from the inside out. You hang around Jesus, but you don't believe in Jesus. And as for the strips of linen, well, they speak to us today that Christ is risen. Death is defeated. There is eternal life beyond the grave, one for us through the sacrifice of our Savior. God is demonstrating to us today by the rising of Jesus from a sinless life of service and sacrifice, carrying our sin to the cross, our guilt is atoned for, our sins, every one of them, praise God, swept away. And so it's as if God is announcing to the world in the resurrection of his Son, nothing less will save you, but nothing more is required. Did you hear that? Nothing less will save you, but nothing more is required. Don't just see. Believe. And so many of us here today love hanging around the empty tomb. Some of us love to hear singing about the old rugged cross. We love to hear about it, sing about it, get comforted by it, but we've had nothing to do with it. We don't believe it. And so we stand like Mary, like Peter at this moment, and we take it in, but we don't believe it. We have not let God's Word change our hearts. But Jesus says, through John's Gospel, don't just see, you must believe. Which leads me to my second and final point today. Weeping and wondering. Weeping and wondering. The scene, do you see, shifts back from the sprint pairing of Peter and John to Mary Magdalene in verse 11. Do you see her standing there, once again outside the tomb, and she's crying. She won't leave this place, for she loves the person whose place it is. This is Jesus' tomb. All the precious memories that she held dear over these three years come to a shuddering stop on the cold stone tomb late on Friday night. She had arrived in the dark, but now daylight is breaking. She had arrived in the dark, but now new light is dawning. Now, we need to know something about this Mary, don't we? This Mary of Magdala. We read most about her in just three verses at the start of Luke chapter 8. She's from a very wealthy shipping port of Magdala on the shores of Lake Galilee. And alongside Joanna and Susanna, she has helped fund Jesus' ministry. We read there that she supported the disciples out of their own means. They were, they were wealthy ladies. But Mary had a difficult past. We read that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. We read that Jesus healed her from disease. And we can only imagine what that had done to her. I almost think that she was probably a little bit the, the female equivalent of the man that Jesus met in Mark chapter 5. Do you remember that man whose life had been scarred, whose body was irreparably damaged by what the devil had done to them? Do we think of that dear man chained and living amongst the gravestones, crying out and, and slicing himself with the rocks? I think that was probably something like Mary Magdalene, full of evil, from a wealthy family, the black sheep of the time, whose life was a living death, until Jesus released her. To a certain degree, she had already experienced new life with Christ, a life that was renewed and restored when she met with Jesus, first of all. 
And we read that Mary is devoted to Jesus, and she's the only follower of his to be with him at the cross, escort him to his burial in the garden, and at resurrection Sunday, she's there in the garden. All four Gospels highlight Mary Magdalene's loving presence. But love hurts. Love hurts. In his wonderful book, A Grief Observed, depicting the personal loss of his wife, Joy, to cancer, C.S. Lewis said this, the death of a beloved one is like an amputation. I think we get that, don't we? Losing someone we love or whom we're close with is like losing a limb. It's like losing an arm or a leg. Something or someone that we've come to always lean on and rely upon, and they're no longer there. It's like we've lost that person who's the most reliable in our world. Is it any wonder that Mary weeps? The one who gave her new life is now dead. How often have we heard in recent months the phrase cancel culture? A lot in this past year, everything from holiday to the Olympic Games and local shopping just shut down. And for Mary, it feels like everything that she's held dear has been canceled, stopped shudderingly, abruptly, all in the space of two days. Finally, here is a man who treated her well, a man who cared for her as a person, not for her past, one who reached out to her in unconditional love, but all of that seemed lost as she stands there. And how do we see her standing there? She's alone. Have you ever felt that way? I know as I look around many of the faces here, I know some of you have told me in recent months, you have felt very much alone. As if no one is interested in you. Or maybe you have a reputation or a past that means that people walk past you and ignore you. Maybe you've lost something or your identity due to decisions that have been made for you or about you. Maybe you feel you just don't fit in with the rest and your heart is bursting and the tears aren't far behind. And it's almost as if you feel like just shouting in the midst of Macrofell, doesn't anyone care how I'm feeling? And we feel alone, all alone. And then we read of Mary in verses 11 and 12. She enters the tomb. Despite being confronted by two angels sitting there where Jesus' head and feet had rested a few hours earlier, rather than being scared off, she engages in conversation. Look at verse 13. They ask her, why are you crying? Why are you crying, Mary? And then she answers the same question the same way. They, whoever they might be, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. Who are this they? Verse 14, at this she turned around. Maybe she heard a noise, a footstep in the garden. We don't know. And there stands Jesus. But she didn't realize it was Jesus. Maybe it was because her eyes were still so full of tears. Maybe she'd almost rubbed herself blind. She'd cried herself silly through the same. Maybe it was because Jesus looked so different. He was gloriously raised. Maybe his body looked different in some way. And he asked her the same question. Why the tears, Mary? Who are you looking for? Mary, supposing Jesus was the gardener, appeals to him for help. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, where have you put him and I will get him? Have you ever heard such nonsense? Emotional Mary, who's as weak as water, how is she going to carry the dead weight of a dead man in her hands? She just isn't thinking straight. From being alone, 
Mary now stands in the presence of the risen Christ. And with just one word, one word, with a name, everything changes. As Jesus says to her, Mary. One word, one word. The way he held her name in his mouth, the way that only Jesus could say it with his northern Galilean accent, so distinctive. The way he said it when he drove out those evil spirits those three years ago, the way he reassured her along the way, the way he spoke to her in her home, the way he laughed with her along the road. You know, long before caller ID appeared in our modern-day phones, most of us knew who was calling by the way the person on the other end said your name. Isn't that right? No matter how crackly or how bad the line, as soon as you heard them say your name, you knew who was speaking to you. Mother or father, son or daughter, friend or work colleague, no matter how hard they tried to disguise it, you knew who you were speaking to. I mean, it's 25 years since I heard my dad say my name, but I can still hear my dad say my name, Dave. It's been six years since I heard my mum call my name, and it was Dave when things were going well, but it was David when things weren't going so well. Mary. One word. No one said her name, like him. Whatever the cause of her blindness, the single word spoken as Jesus had always said it was enough to remove all fear. Anguish and despair instantly swallowed up by astonishment and delight. And I think it's so significant here that Christ first appears to Mary, not to an apostle, not to Pilate. Jesus didn't go into Pilate and say, hey, I told you so. He appears to a woman who's broken and in despair. Jesus appeared to a woman who had known such distress. What a great comfort it should be to us that Christ always comes first to the poor in spirit, just like he said in his first sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not the confident and the cocky, not the wonderfully reassured and religious, not the people who think it, it's wonderful, and, but to those who are weeping. Jesus isn't looking for people who are on top of their A-game, but people who have hit rock bottom to the sinners, the strugglers, and the sufferers. That's who Jesus reveals himself to. This truth will never change. He knows your name, Valerie, or Janet, or John, or Robert, or Jean, or Peter, or David, whoever you are, he knows and calls your name lovingly, and quietly, and tenderly, and confidently. He's there to redeem, and reassure, and to rescue, and to save. But some of us sit here today so stone-hearted and proud, it's as if we don't even want them to say our name. But to those of you who are broken-hearted, and have known the tears and the tears in life. He is risen to save. He is alive forevermore to welcome us in our weeping, 
to embrace us in our anxiety, to comfort us in our fears, to forgive us from our sins. How incredible to think that all of this takes place in a garden surrounded by tombs, in a place of death. She finds eternal life. And how amazing to think that Mary confuses Jesus for a gardener walking in his garden. I mean, who would ever confuse God for a gardener? Oh, hold on. That's where it all began, wasn't it? In a garden? In the willful disobedience of Genesis chapter 3, when mankind rejected the love of God, the gardener who placed them in his garden and walked with them each day? But here's another garden in the place of death that came as a consequence of your sin and mine. This Jesus who took the wages of sin that we couldn't pay, the Son of God walks out and walks around and lives again. When he knows your sin and he sees the state you're in, that you are all alone and without hope in this world, won't you hear his loving call today? If you're an unbeliever, hear it for a first time. If you're a believer, hear his call into your life again today. He loves to call your name. Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday is a glorious interruption. It upends all our expectations. It's like an asteroid of pure joy that comes crashing into the middle of our sadness and sorrow in this world. Whatever is troubling us, and precisely because it's an unexpected clash of tragedy and delight, it provokes in us an awesome joy, a tear-filled wonder. It connects with the deepest reaches of the human soul. The cross-scarred champion returns from the fight to declare his love. He has loved us to hell and back. I want you all to hear this today. He has loved you to hell and back. And now in the midst of our pains and trials, we are given hope. A hope that we have not earned and a joy that we can never repay. For friends, this is Easter Sunday. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. In the 15th century, the southern tip of Africa used to be called the Cape of Storms. And throughout the 1400s, dozens of people would attempt to round the Cape, would end up being dashed to pieces on the enormous rocks in that coastline. Thousands of lives had been lost by sailors traveling to India by sea. India was the promised land, the place of spices and fortunes could be made there. This Cape seemed an impossible barrier that no one could cross until Vasco da Gama, the Portuguese explorer, made that attempt. In July 1497, he led a fleet of four ships from Lisbon in Portugal, and by Christmas he had sailed through the storms and out the other side. And he pioneered a trade route to India and came back making himself and the whole kingdom of Portugal rich. The journey that was thought impossible was accomplished. And Vasco da Gama renamed that peninsula that had taken the lives of countless explorers, the Cape of Good Hope. And friends, Easter is greater, a grander vision of da Gama's exploits as it relates to one man who endured all the storms, 
that no one before him had been through. And yet he managed to navigate them and open up hope for us all. For on the cross on Good Friday, Jesus entered the storms too strong for us that would have taken us down. No other traveler could have faced it without crashing. And yet Jesus went through them all and emerges out the other side on Easter Sunday and into a promised land full of resurrection, life, and hope, and riches forevermore. Easter is what turns our storms and the things that trouble us most into the place of eternal good. I hope you know that hope today. Christian, I hope you realize this is the best thing you're going to hear this year. Unbeliever, this truly is good news. He turns the storms into that place of unrivaled and unparalleled. 